we're in a society, it's always about becoming. I'm becoming better. I'm going to start meditating more. I'm going to wear white. I'm whatever it is. I'm going to spend more time with my guru. We're always have an agenda. And that's okay. But not if you want to wake up. Hey, how are you? This is Scott Bryant Comstock, host of the Kundalini Chronicles, and this is episode number 35. Now today, we have a special episode today. Typically, uh, the Kundalini Chronicles is me sharing uh, a poem that I've written automatically when I wake up, word or phrase comes to mind, and uh, out comes a poem, and that drives the day for lessons for all of us to use in our own lives to make our time walking on this earth a better experience. But today, the structure of the podcast is a bit different. We're doing an interview today with Tom Thompson, who is my spiritual teacher, my Kalyana Mitra. And I am most excited. If you've listened to the podcast uh, through all the episodes, you've probably heard me mention Tom from time to time. Tom uh, leads a satsang that happens in Pittsburgh, North Carolina every Sunday. And it was Tom who I was introduced to when I was going through my awakening. And the cranial sacral therapist who was working on me as the awakening began said, hey, you know what? This is getting a little out of my pay grade here. Uh, These experiences you're happening, but I know what's going on with you. And I think I know somebody who could help And so I'm forever grateful to my massage therapist, who also is a cranial sacral therapist, for introducing me to Tom Thompson. I went to Tom. I didn't have the slightest idea what was going on. I was just having these phenomenal experiences. And I talk about this in earlier episodes of the podcast, but suffice to say, I connected with Tom. He helped me through my awakening process. And I got to tell you, I... um, I, I feel so blessed uh, to have had a spiritual teacher who amazingly, you know, lived like 10 miles from me. Um, it's just amazing how the universe, <laughs> how the universe works. But hey, hey, enough of that. Let's get into the interview. I'm really, really excited for you to meet Tom. And I'm really excited to explore with Tom, with you, his story the arc of his evolution as a spiritual teacher. So, hey, let's get started. Um, Suffice to say, Tom Thompson, I talk about you from time to time in the podcast that I do in the Kundalini Chronicles. And and usually it's just in, you know, in reference, because I call you my teacher. I know, I know you gave me another term to use, but I can never remember what it is. Call it Kalyana Mitra. Kaliana Mitra, spiritual friend, I think is what yeah. is what that right. is. Okay, yes, yeah, so Kaliana Mitra, it's beautiful. I like that. All right, Kaliana Mitra. So from time to time, I, I talk about you, and as you know, the structure of the podcast is: I wake up, and there's a phrase, and I do this automatic writing of poetry, and then I just sit where I'm sitting now. Out comes the poetry, and say, "Oh, there's a lesson there," and and so so you, you come up from time to time. So I have had several requests. Hey, we want to hear from this Tom guy. <laughs> so you've gone from Kalyana Mitra to spiritual teacher to the Tom guy. <laughs> so, I'll go with that. Yeah. And 
I thought, absolutely. This is, this is beautiful because, you know, the podcast is really me sharing my journey, which as you know, as my Kalyana Mitra is that it's anything but linear. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It is anything but linear. And, and I continue to, to have this lovely, blissful adventure that, um, you know, quite candidly, is as clear as can be one moment and another moment is not clear. And, and I, in the satsang a couple of weeks ago, when you had on, is it Robert Stuckey? Yeah, Robert Stuckey. And he, you know, he made the, the comment about going deeper, which you talk about a lot as well. So every time it gets unclear for me that it's just this reminder, okay, I need to go deeper. Because this is not about me. This is not about my experiences. And I want to talk about that. But it really is about being coming one with the universe. And the more I try to make it something, the more confusing it gets. And I need to get out of the way. That sounds so simple, Tom. (laughs) But I, you know, anyway, so there's my struggle with that. But for you, if you do you mind sharing your because your story is fascinating. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I'm trying to think, so, so, you know, for our listeners, Tom got involved in this, what, awareness world, he was 15 years old. Tom, at 15, I was playing screenball, you know, up at the schoolyard. And, and I, I'm trying to remember, I guess at 15, I was probably starting to get interested in girls, but had no idea what that was all about. I mean, it's just that weird time. How in the world did you begin to open yourself up to spiritual possibilities at that age? At that age, I was already uh, involved in science. Um, I nearly killed my family because I had a laboratory in the house. And then one day my father came up and read my notes. And he goes, that's why we're all sick all the time. I mean, I have these Petri dishes of all sorts of things. So he very kindly helped me build a lab out in the stable in the backyard, which is you know, I had a refrigerator, a centrifuge, all sorts of stuff in there. And I was working with crown gall plant cancer, among many other things. And what I was interested in is, what is life? What's going on? And plants, you know, there, there's an intelligence that when you plant a sunflower seed, it doesn't come out an apple seed, an apple plant. And the same thing with humans, you know, it's this is a long time ago, but still genetically, we could predict personality traits, all sorts of things. So what is this life and what is it doing? So we went to North Carolina on a vacation. We were looking for colleges for my brother. And we stayed with my aunt and uncle down in Lumberton. And she had a book on yoga. And most of the yoga books back then were, you know, written for Hollywood celebrities, you know, how to lose fat and how to be slim. And, and the truth is a lot of great Hollywood celebrities in the 60s were serious about yoga. But that's where I first heard the term kundalini. And it totally resonated with me as the missing link. And so I shifted my focus in the trying to understand what yoga was about. Now, you talk about girlfriends that did not go over well with my girlfriends. They all thought I was going to end up a doctor or scientist or psychiatrist. Now I'm telling them. (laughs) And they're like, you're going to do what? (laughs) (laughs) 
unfortunately, it was a hippie time. And so there were other ways you could sort of fit in. But there was always this question in the back of my mind is what's, what's going on? So I didn't live far from New York City. So I'd go in and buy books. But I didn't have a teacher. I didn't have anybody who really could explain. You know, I could see it had a lot of depth. And it had been going on a long time. Finally, in 1971, I was able to go to Valmoran, Quebec for six weeks and study with Swami Vishnu Devananda, who was a disciple in the lineage of Swami Shivananda. And Swami Shivananda started out as a medical doctor. So he was able to explain a lot of the yogic principles to the Western mind in terms of using scientific term, medical term. So that was the first in-depth training I had and where I really began to learn the system of Kundalini, the chakras, centers of consciousness, what postures were really about, breathing really about. I'm trying to think how you go from your, your, <laughs> your science lab in the backyard to seven years later or eight years later, whatever, actually making the trip up to Quebec. I mean, how did that happen? Well, the, the honest answer is I don't know. I mean, I can look back and create a story around it. But the truth was it was out of my hands. I was the, uh, what was it? the newspaper was published by the Wall Street Journal, National Observer, I think. They did a story on Swami Vishnu. And that got me wondering about that. And I did the research, found out where he was, that he was training people and went up there. But the, the bus, I wasn't driving the bus. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, boy, is that ever a theme in my life now? So it just happened. So there's not an A, B, C. It just went A to Z. It was, it was not a coherent plan. My grandmother died and left me just about to the nickel enough money to do that. So what what was the experience like when you went up there? I mean, you know, when you first went into, was it a center or a... a... So it's a beautiful, they called it a yoga camp. It's up in the mountains of Valmoran and beautiful mountains, lakes, streams, trees. And this Swami Vishnu created this place for people to come all from all over the world to train in yoga. At that point, I saw yoga as a science. I didn't know much about Hinduism. So the cultural affectations started freaking me out. I, I really, to this day, have no desire to sit around. My friends do, and I'm all for it. I'm all for anybody doing this. I have no desire to sit around and chant devotionally to a Hindu God. Yeah, I'm fine if other people do it. But a lot of what went on there, it's like I could see how the cultural culture impacted the pure, clean teachings of yoga. And a lot of people didn't make the distinctions between the incredible discernment and discrimination needed during the devotional things. You know, they're sitting around chanting to a deity they know nothing about. But it's the herd instinct. You know, that's what everybody's doing. And so uh, unpack that a little bit more. So, so, what is the positive and you know negative of that? Is is just because it becomes chanting for chanting's sake, or? Well, it is an expression of devotion, but like we were talking about in satsang, I think devotion 
towards other humans and animals is a good way to express it. The cultural affectations did not and do not interest me. And so it's like, it's like saying if you're a mathematician, you have to be Catholic too. It's like, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I think I think if you understand math, you don't have to be. You can do math without that, and that that's what I was. I was shocked by it initially, and then I realized that all these cultural affectations, you know, putting on the robes and the BD and changing your name and showing great devotion and all of that, for me, had nothing to do with it. When I talk about you to people, one of the things that I love about you and that, that I express is that I think one of the things you do so amazingly well is 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 that maybe separate out the devotional aspect, which can lead in some cases to not so good things, you know, to, oh, yeah. to the ego driving the train, so to speak. And for myself, I find that uh, just such a, a, a blessing to have someone like you in my life who hammers that in, in a, in a very, you know, uh, supportive way. So, okay. So you have that realization. Did that put you on the outs with people or was it? No, I, there were people, uh, there's a Kashmiri writer named Gopi Krishna who wrote a number of books on Kundalini and he wanted it to be studied in the laboratory. He believed there's a biological basis, bodies, undergoes transformations, the brain, all sorts of things. And Gopi Krishna underwent, sort of like you, you know, it was, came out of the blue. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. also, and he experienced so many shifts and changes that were biological and mental and everything else. And he spent the rest of his life creating like the Kundalini Research Network, Kundalini Clinics. And his book, Kundalini, The Evolutionary Intelligence in Man, it's a very good book because he's not trying to sell Hinduism. He's trying to explain something phenomenal happened to him. And he believed it happens to other people, which is, of course, correct, as you all know. Yeah. And that you can actually study this. And he believed it is the evolutionary power in humans. It's what made us upright animals. It's made us a creative language, you know, you're, you're interested in Sanskrit. That, that language is such an amazing transmission. And so Gopi Krishna uh, was looking at all of these things and able to get scientists and doctors looking at this phenomenon that's transformative. It's, it's amazing. So how, how old are you at this time when you're up there in Quebec? You're 20 something? Uh, 22. Oh, geez. Okay. So, so you, so then what, because I, I'm trying to wrap my head around and I, I, and baby, if you share what you want to share, but I'm guessing you came from a relatively traditional Western oriented family. Yeah. Fortunately, um, my father was, I'd say an agnostic. He didn't, you know, he just, that's what he was. My mother made feeble attempts with my brother and me in church, but they were feeble attempts. She wasn't a preacher and she didn't, you know, do that. You're going to go to hell if you do that again. Um, my grandmother was very developed, but same thing. She never used it. So there was a lot of freedom. And of course, the psychedelic explosion was going on with Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, Ralph Metzner. We're all seeing 
how, and many, many others, the psychedelic experience is very similar to Kundalini experience. You know, you take the right amount of LSD, you go, I'm sitting here, I'm in control, I know what's going to happen, and then <laughs> that's, you're blown out. Yeah. And so that's very similar to Kundalini experiences. So where, where did you go? Is that when you went to Connecticut or where did the path take you after being up in Quebec? Well, I, the draft board was after me. I was in the peace movement. So I became a con- legitimate conscientious objector. I went, jumped through all the hoops. Yeah. And then to do alternate service for the draft, I went into the California Ecology Corps in California. So I ended up in California and doing that and studying, you know, Iku Maeda was my Buddhist teacher, went to a Buddhist temple. Again, at this point, yoga was beginning to blossom. There was a lot more of it accepted, especially in California. Okay. So, so you're, you're doing that kind of work. And, and I, and I guess what I, what, what I want to tease out. So a very significant learning, it sounds like when you're up in Quebec is like separating out the worship versus right. the experience. The beliefs, the, the beliefs. beliefs. Yeah. So as you are moving along, you're still young, you're in your twenties and, you know, bringing lots of things in. Are you starting to question or are you just sort of moving along? Well, I was questioning all the time. Okay. Um, I wanted evidence. There were a lot of people practicing. I wanted to see somebody who's actually awake or liberated, whatever, you know, you know, everybody call it self-realization. I put a lot of investment into Zen. And they they know how to story around this. What do you mean? Well, you say, well, I want to see somebody who's actually had a real satori. They go, well, that's not really the aim of Zen. The aim of Zen is to sit here and sit quietly. You know, you've heard me talk about this. Yes. Do yes. nothing. <laughs> yeah, but. You don't have to go to a Zen monastery to do that. You can do that in the bus or at the shopping. You know, what? what is it? And uh, actually, it was when I was with Muktananda that I got the best Zen answers, being with him. And, and I had actual uh, shifts in consciousness when I was the first with him. So I tolerated a lot of a huge circus going on around him because... He, I experienced many radical shifts in his presence. What were those shifts like? Well, there are two. Uh, one was in certain schools of Buddhism, they say shunyata, vast emptiness. It's the highest realization, what I call the unborn. And I asked Puktananda, he was with tons of people, I asked him if the unborn was the final realization. He said, no, that that recognizes the unborn. And when he said that, it wasn't an intellectual concept. It was a profound, I got it. I mean, I knew, I didn't know it until he said it, but I totally got it when he said it. Yeah. That that even the unborn is appearing within infinite awareness. And when you got, you know, something you talk about a lot and that that resonates with me is is that you know you often say in satsang is as soon as in fact i felt a twinge of oh i don't want to ask him this because as soon as you well what you often say is is as soon as you put a description around something 
it's not real. <laughs> you know, you've altered the it, right? And I love that. And it's like, so here I am asking you to explain and describe. When, when that happened with, with Muktananda, did, did, did that need, which I find in myself, to sort of put a description around it, did all that go away? Is that, was that the instant awareness where, where there was, I, 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 I talk to so many people who want to know what the it is. You know, they want it described, they want it packaged, and I'm just curious. The it is not an object. The it is not something appearing in consciousness. It's free consciousness itself. And we already are that. But because our attention goes to all the other it's, yes. we're, we're seeking it. You know, when I say the void or shunyata, you go, well, what, what's that like? That, oh, yeah. And the mind is still seeking. But at a certain point, there's a total release and the freedom. Yeah. And it's not an intellectual, it's not a philosophical, it's not a religious, it's not a spiritual. All of those are, in my opinion, avoidance strategies. It is freedom for nobody. So Tom and Scott don't get anything out of it. And yet we do. Because seeking stops. There's a relaxation and acceptance of life as it is. So the, talking about this can lead somebody to have a Kensho or Satori actual insight, not because of my words, but because they're actually familiar with what I'm saying. Even though they may not be cognitively aware, you say something and suddenly it's there. The other thing, you're, you're taking courses and stuff. The other thing Muktananda said is in Zen, we sit very, back then, the Rinzai Zen, it's all different now. But we very serious, long periods of Zen, and we're supposed to be creating a space between two thoughts. The idea is thought's a problem. But Muktananda said, your thoughts are divine consciousness expressing itself. You don't have to get rid of your thoughts. You don't have to do anything. All there is is this supreme consciousness dancing. So when you have right relationship with your thoughts, you just let them happen. And in that, not hurting them or shitting on them, you know, I shouldn't be thinking. I should. Over time, there's just this open expansiveness, this freedom. And then you recognize it's always been here. And often many of us recognize it from our early childhood. You know, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, I've been here before. <laughs> and then they go, Scott, have you done your homework? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm out blowing things up in my lab out in the backyard. <laughs> so where did your time with, uh, I love the story with Sri Dion Yogi G, and I may not be pronouncing this correctly. Great. My apologies, but where, where did he enter your life and how did he enter your life? His full name is Sri Dion Yogi Madhusudandas, Slayer of Dragons. He entered my life in a very interesting way. I was, I had a wife and a baby and was going through, as you recognize, a serious Kundalini process, a depersonalization. I mean, psychiatry has a field there with this depersonalization, all sorts of stuff. And 
I was under a lot of stress and anxiety because I felt I needed to be able to take care of my family. And if I didn't, in a way, get anxious about it, I would just sort of disappear. So Lisa Nella, who's an ophthalmologist and a psychiatrist on the West Coast, wrote a book on Kundalini. And I wrote him and I told him what was going on. And I still have on his little uh, prescription pads, his notes that he mailed me. He was an extremely kind man that he, I'm sure he had hundreds of people like me, but he'd write me back. And then he said, there's another guru like Muktananda, Sri Dhyanyogi. And he said, if you can get in touch with him. Now, Baba, by this point, all of his stuff was so professional. I mean, it was so sharp and clear and the printing and the magazines. And it was like, you know, it had been Americanized. But this thing, Lisa, I mean, was this sort of beat up sheet of paper that somebody, you know, like mimeographed out of something. (laughs) And it described Sri Dhyanyogi. But I saw enough in that description to realize if any of this is true, he's the real deal. So he was up in Boston at that point. I was in Connecticut. I wrote him a note and dropped in the mailbox and freaked out completely. It's like, what have I done? What have I done? And he said, yeah, I'll come visit you. So he and Lakshman and Moti, two American disciples, came to see us at my mother's house in Southbury, Connecticut. Anandima didn't come because she was sick and she was in the hospital in Boston. So they came and... Guruji at that point was around 100 years old. He'd had a near-death experience in India, saving people. He was working day and night, and he'd had a near-death experience, and he went to his heaven, the realm of Lord Ram. And Ram basically said, what are you doing here? He goes, well, I think I'm dead. He goes, well, you can't be dead. You have hundreds of disciples to get yourself back down there. And when Guruji had the vision, they were all Westerners, and Guruji had never been West. So Anandima brought him back into the body and Guruji got better. And Dalipshi, who's Anandima's husband, was already in the United States studying different medical things. So he set up for them to come over here. And Guruji was on a tour. They did not know how to do the big America extravaganza thing. But when I wrote him, he said, I'll come. And I actually have friends who said they didn't come see him because what type of real guru would come to Southbury, Connecticut to see nobody? And the answer is a real one. So Guruji came. And uh, when I told him what was going on, he patted me on the head and goes, oh, don't worry, Tulsi Ram, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> That's why I laugh at you sometimes. <laughs> oh, don't worry, Scott. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a lot of the students uh wanted to set up a center, so they didn't. It's still there in Woodbury, and Anandima still goes there. So the the um, uh, the book that you turned me onto, which I have, and this Tom's story is in this book, it's called This House is on Fire, um, The yeah. Life of Sri Dhyan Yogi. I tell you, I resonate with so much of your story, but but the thing that really hits me, and the, the book does a nice job of it, is that moment when you put the letter in the mailbox. <laughs> And, and so, you know, and I've talked to you about this, you know, this theme of doubt, which just is like, come on, Scott, can you just sort of let all this go? And I, and I, boy, I really resonate to that. 
Can you just talk about what that was like? I mean, you touched on it, but really, what was going through your mind? You know, the letter goes in the mailbox and it's like, I can't retrieve that. And that just, for, for me, maybe it was projection, but it felt like a pivotal moment. Yes, it was. And I think the relief was that I could cover myself with, well, well nobody's going to respond to that. It's not going to get any up, you know, next. So I, I was relieved until they did respond to it and said, yeah, we're coming. <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. So he's a hundred years old at the time, right? He was around a hundred. He yeah. lived to be 116, but yeah. he had started a new mission in the West because that was what he was guided to do. And he learned to speak English. When I first met him, he didn't speak English. He had to have people, you'd say something, he'd look at them, they get the translation. Year later, he's speaking English as well as you and me. I mean, that's pretty good for an old man. It's pretty darn good. So uh, in, in the book, and there's a great description that this car pulls up, and I'm trying to remember, and he's got a big, like, box suitcase type yeah, yeah. thing on top of the car. And what's going through your mind? What's going through your mom's mind, your, your, your dad's mind? I mean, what? Well, fortunately, my parents were divorced and my father was in North Carolina and I'm not sure where my mother was, but she was letting us use her house. She was traveling somewhere. And I'd been with Muktananda enough to know gurus take a lot of care. That's why he had two disciples. You know, Moti and Lakshman were uh, Western disciples from, I can't remember where they are in California, but they, they know how to take care of them. They were very devout. And there are all sorts of protocols. Like you don't sit on the guru's chair, you don't eat his food, you don't, it's all these protocols. And so I'd seen them around Muktananda, but I, I wasn't like trained in them. So I was just freaking out, but it went very well. And they were all kind, very kind. Guruji was very relaxed and open and laughing a lot. He would ask questions like, when's the monsoon season? I go, Guruji, you don't have monsoon season. And he goes, where are all the cows? Well, there are cows, but we got to drive them. <laughs> he's just, he's like, I went to the places he lived in India, and it's like going back into the 1800s. I mean, these people, primitive surroundings and people, Bandwad and uh, Mount Abu and stuff. So Guruji went from that. He went into a supermarket. He'd never seen that much food in his life. He goes, is this where all Americans come? We go, no, no, this is just for our town. He's who eats all this stuff? I mean, you know, it's just such a cultural uh, shift for him. But he handled it all. Yeah. You know, Tom, when I got the book, there's a picture of, you know, Sri Dhyan Yogi on the cover. And I'm actually looking at it now and it's, it's like, not only is he alive, he's in, in me, you know, he's like yes. in soul and, and same with, uh, uh, Anandima, you know, I watched a YouTube video of her and I didn't know who she was till I got this book and I watched this video and it's, it's, it's the fascinating, most fascinating experience because I everything is kind of in fuzzy. I see, I don't see straight lines anymore. It's all kind of this <laughs> vibration stuff. But it was as if she just like I I don't know how to explain it. It's like this merging of souls and the TV go. You know the YouTube 
component, it all goes away. So is there a way you can even talk about what that is or what, what, what am I trying to say? Uh, it, it, it's like these physical beings are like touched by God, right? And by God, for right. me, God, I mean, you know, the, the, right. the, like they are manifestation of the universe. Well, of course they are, but no, they really are. It is just, right. Right. I, I don't know what, yeah, I'm asking you to describe something I have a hard time putting words to, but it's like they're magnets in a way. Well, you can't. It's, you know, one of the ways I used to describe it is like you're a bunch of pre-adolescent boys and you hate girls. <laughs> and like, why did anybody girls, you know, get rid of them. I don't want to see them. They're useless. Yeah. And then one day you're sitting there, you look up and there you see whoever it is and everything shifts. Yeah. All your opinions, all your belief system, all you want to do is spend as much time with her as possible. Yeah. And it's not a belief. It's not a concept. It's not something you were setting up. It happens. So the guru principle is the principle of awakening. It's, it's a uh, tattva. And it manifests through certain human beings. And just because somebody may be my guru doesn't mean it's somebody else's guru. But what happens is exactly what you're saying. There is a transformative grace that the human mind can un understand. It can experience it because you have. But it's very difficult, if not impossible, to explain it to somebody who's never had that. Uh, Wayne Lickerman, who's one of my teachers, was a uh, full-time, full-out, liar, cheat, scoundrel, alcoholic, drug addict, cocaine, womanizer, and uh, eventually he stopped drinking, and so he started wondering what happened. And to make a long story short, he met Ramesh, his guru, and Ramesh is a very dry, intellectual banker. He was head of the Bank of India, and he was not a uh, showman. And Wayne went home and he said, I have fallen in love with a banker from India. And he goes, this is the most insane, and I'm not on drugs. He said, this is the most insane. So Wayne would take all his friends to meet Ramesh, and they go, oh, he's a nice old Indian man, you know, and see, he's interesting, but, you know. And so, of course, many people have felt that with Ramesh, but most haven't. And it's, it's a grace that we can't make happen, but it is grace, and when it does happen, it's incredible. And you can't, you can't explain it to people who haven't had it happen because they just don't yeah. get it. Yeah. But the grace can come through a picture. Like yeah. I told you, that picture of Guruji, you know, that somebody else will look at that and go, he's a nice old Indian man. You're looking at him and yeah. it's connected. Yeah. It's, and yeah. It's, it's connected. It's quite profound. Um, yeah. And so yeah. you just keep opening and opening and opening to it. So you, um, I guess it was in the early eighties, right? You opened up a yoga center in, yeah. in up, up in Connecticut. And what was the motivation for that? I'm mean, trying to kind of understand the arc of this amazing life of yours, you know? My motivation was to present the teachings of awakening meditation and yoga in a context that is scientifically validated. 
I was working in a hospital, you know, all this good stuff. And I felt uh, I wanted to, I wanted to get as many people meditating as possible. And if anybody looked at the research, it's a really good thing to do. So I was trying to establish a yoga center based on Western scientific principles. It's not denying the yogic process. It's simply contextualizing them so people could understand why they might want to do this. And I also wanted to contextualize awakening that, that you don't need a big system of philosophy. You don't need this. I taught a course called the Supreme Doctrine of Direct Recognition. But Anandima, who I love, and she's my guru, uh, basically was her center and Guruji's son. And so... Uh, we built a big meditation hall. It's still there. And it was a very good center and wonderful things happened. But it was not, I could not teach and be authentic in that context. And Anandima, I think, understands this. I mean, I really, when, before I left, I was really clear to her. And I even retook Shaktipat a day or two before I left to make a statement. But this isn't about Anandima. This is about I couldn't live with the shoulds, have tos, ought tos of that center. Yeah. 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 I love that about you. I love that about you. So, so you go from there. Did you, is that when you came to North Carolina? Yeah. And when I came here, we got a center going. And uh, it was very hard for me to initially find my way because I had all these uh, deep teachings I'd gained, practices, and yet, which are all valid and useful. But I really wanted to, I couldn't, I didn't have the words to express what had happened to me. And then in the early uh, 90s, I was at a natural food store in uh, Southern Pines. The stores had several births since then, but it was, in its beginning, I looked up and here was this wild, blonde-haired woman with the makeup on, looking like a California girl, sitting under a tree, grinning. And uh, I basically didn't like her. It was like just two California, two sales. And then the title of the tape set was Under the Bodhi Tree. So I went in and out of the store and I didn't buy it because... It's ridiculous, but eventually I bought it and went home. And Gangashi is speaking so clearly about what had happened to me. Huh. It all stopped. It all just stopped. And when it stops, there are no words. There are no philosophies. There's just, and I'm sitting there falling in love with somebody I never met. But I'm, it was, you know, she really helped. And then eventually she came to North Carolina and you know, we met and we took a whole bunch of students to a silent retreat in the 1990s. But she was very important in liberating me from the idea that something has to happen first for authentic awakening to happen, that it's predicated on something. How did she do that? How did she help you see that? But she just talked about it talked about being 
versus becoming. We're in a society, it's always about becoming. I'm becoming better. I'm going to start meditating more. I'm going to wear white. I'm whatever it is. I'm going to spend more time with my guru. We're always have an agenda. And that's okay, but not if you want to wake up. And that's hard because we automatically go to our agenda, especially awakening. I mean, yes. So she was the one, like I've said, it was like being lost in a foreign country where nobody speaks English. And all of a sudden you heard a woman speaking English and you just want to run up and throw yourself. And I knew she knew what happened to me and she confirmed that. She just laughed and confirmed, you know, and it all stopped. It all stopped. This entire structure I've been propping up for years just stopped. That doesn't mean it's not useful in certain areas, but in terms of waking up, it's it's all an avoidance strategy. What, what was her name again, Tom? Gangaji. G-A-N-G-A-J-I. Do you think it was destined? For you to meet her, I mean, just does it does you know predestinate? Does that kind of even enter in? Is it all part of a master plan? Here's the thing, Scott. With with a lot of this, even earlier, uh, we we can in in Wayne Lickerman a few years later, we can use reality tunnels to explain stuff. Yeah. For instance, people said the reason I got involved in yoga. Um, one of my students on Woodbury said, because I've been a yogi many, many years, many disciples. So it's just natural. So he had a big story. <laughs> Great story. You know? uh, and and uh, with Gangaji, who knows why I bought that tape set. But as soon as she started talking, I'm going, holy God, yeah, she yeah. gets it. She knows. Yeah, and I yeah. just I just listened to the whole tape set. And then... <laughs> Tractor. <laughs> I ask you that sort of knowing the answer because I also tell people this about you. It's like, you know, Tom always says, don't believe a word I say <laughs> because it's, it's a reality tunnel, right? It's a, it's a right. thing. That's correct. Uh, God, that's just beautiful. All right. So that happened. And, and people, the truth is people like reality tunnels better than what is. Yeah. The mind, I should say the mind likes a good reality tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, that's just so, so powerful. So in 2017, I think it is, you started offering satsang and hamsa meditation. What, what led to that? What, what called you to do that? Well, we moved, we moved here from Southern Pines and I didn't want to get involved in a big center in teaching again. I just really wanted to focus on satsang and I had a list of a number of centers and a number of people. And the first one we met with was Lexi. And, you know, poor Lexi is a businesswoman. She's got to make some money. But as I'm sitting there explaining to her, this is not money oriented. You know, some people will send us money. Hopefully some people won't. But we're not. That's not. And she said, yes. She got it. She got it. And so first person I talked to, we started doing satsang at the yoga garden and it's just been amazing. I've taught, I think you were in an intensive I did about a year ago. Yes. And we've done some Qigong classes and other stuff, but for me it's satsang and, and it's not satsang because people need it. It's satsang because we, we all enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. So Lexi 
Lexi has been uh, very kind and supportive. Yeah. Well, you know, I it has been such a blessing for me to to find that. And, and um, the, the reality tunnel I enjoy hanging on to is the one that, uh, you know, I end up going to a cranial sacral massage therapist <laughs> right. who says, oh, boy, this is getting out of my league. And says, let me tell you about this guy named Tom. You need to check this out. And, and you know, and it's just I just continue to marvel at how these pieces uh and I'm Tom. I'm get. I'm a work in progress, brother. Because because there's a there's a romantic quality to how all those pieces. And you know what I mean by romantic quality. It's it's like yeah. it's kind of a movie, right? Right. And it's so Absolutely. easy to fall in love with the movie script, you know, yeah. as, as opposed to the just being. <laughs> and that's okay as long as we don't lose track of yeah what's most important. Yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful story. It really is. <laughs> that and five bucks will get you a cup of coffee, right? <laughs> but I think it is important that people know that it can happen to anybody, any place. Yeah. Yeah. That's that, what happened with you. That's what happened to me. Well, Tom, this is, it's been a delightful, delightful um, hour. A anything you want to, you want to leave us with as we, as we close this out, don't have to, but if there's anything that it's, it's in there that you want to share. I just think people, you've already got what you're seeking. And if we just stop and really allow what's happening, something can be seen. Not if you're sitting there. Just yeah. relax. Yeah. Tom, this is such a blessing. This is. Well, thank you, Scott. It was great. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. Bye. You. Wow. What'd I tell you? Tom Thompson is amazing. Uh, he's such a blessing. Uh, he's amazing because he just is. And that is the essence of the awakening experience. Our quest to be just is. I admittedly am still on that quest. <laughs> but having people like Tom in my life really has helped me. And I hope this is this uh, interview and conversation with Tom helps you as well. I want to encourage you to check out the uh, Awaken Heart Center, uh, which is where you can learn more about Tom Thompson. And it's theawakenheartcenter.com. So yeah, check it out. Learn more about my spiritual teacher. And um, we're on this journey together. This is Scott Bryant Comstock signing off. See ya. We're happy to share whatever we've got.